Revealing Voices is a mental health podcast that is faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. Host Tony Roberts and guest hosts with lived experience take you on a journey of revealing voices, working for justice, crying out for healing, speaking the truth in love, and expressing beauty in art. I'm Kevin Early Bird Early, technical producer and sound mixer, and I want to welcome you to Revealing Voices. Hello, this is Tony Roberts with Revealing Voices, and I'm with my co-host Leona Satterberg. Dr. Leona Satterberg is with me for four episodes in a series on mental health in the church. And it's only taken us four episodes to bring in the author of the book on mental health in the church, Dr. Steve Gersovich. Steve, thanks for coming on. Well, Tony and Leona, I'm honored that you included me in this series. So, so thanks so much for having me, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Steve, you and I go back a ways to, I believe, the first or second mental health inclusion conference, the inclusion fusion, as it was then called, that key ministry conducted. When was key ministry conceived and what inspired you to pursue this mission? So we recently had our 20th birthday on Christmas Eve as an organization at key ministry. And I guess the original inspiration for this goes back now 25 years to when I was serving on session at the Presbyterian Church where family's gone for a very long time now. And back at that time, it was the late 1990s, we had a fairly large cohort of families within the church who, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, had adopted kids from orphanages in Eastern Europe and Russia and Bulgaria in particular, who had some very complex emotional, behavioral, developmental problems, all greatly exacerbated by considerable trauma and neglect. And I'm sitting in a a session meeting or elder meeting and listening to Libby Peterson, who was our children's ministry director at the time, Talk about some of the things that our church was doing to try to to care for and support the families who had adopted these kids. Because, I mean, a lot of these folks, they were like the stalwarts of the church. They were leaders. They were people who were key volunteers. They were active and had their hands in all kinds of things. And one of the things that started happening after these kids came into their families was that the challenges that they were having raising these kids and 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 some of the kind the nature of the problems that the children themselves are having were getting in the way of the families being able to stay engaged with church. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm sitting here listening to this. And at the time, again, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by training. You know, we had a fairly large independent group practice in suburban Cleveland. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I wonder how much this is a problem for the kinds of families that are coming through a practice like ours. And at that point, probably the top four things that we were treating, and again, that this is the late 90s now, were probably ADHD, anxiety disorders, depression, and kids on the high end of the autism spectrum with all the comorbid stuff that oftentimes goes along with that. And so not not in a formal way like we would do if I were going to 
publish a research study on this. But as we were sort of cycling through our kids, one of the things that I did was that I asked every family when they came through their follow-up visits one question, like over the next three months. And it was basically, did the problems that brought you to our practice interfere with your family's ability to participate, you know, your church or place of worship? And I was floored by some of the stories that I started hearing from folks. You know, and it became very evident that the kinds of kids that we were seeing in our practice, that for their families, their, you know, church engagement and participation was significantly different than like what we would see, you know, for other families with kids of that age in the community. And so the Lord would orchestrate things. Around that time, I had one of the three original research grants for Adderall, which became, you know, the most commonly prescribed medication for ADHD. And for probably a five, six-year period of time, I was probably doing 100-plus lectures a year, traveling around the country a lot, speaking a lot to, you know, physician groups, medical groups. And wherever I went, as part of the introduction, I would mention something about the nature of some of the work that our church was doing in Cleveland in terms of supporting families who had these issues. And so our church started getting inundated with requests for help uh, because you know, other physicians, nurse practitioners, psychologists were recognizing that, that this really is a problem. And so key ministry came about as a resource, as an organization to help churches welcome families who had kids with what we characterize as hidden disabilities. Any significant emotional, behavioral, developmental, neurologic condition without outwardly apparent physical symptoms. Mm. Because one of the things that we see oftentimes is that like when, it, when a kid has an obvious disability, people in the church can be quite caring and quite supportive. But on the other hand, folks can be pretty judgmental at times. And at our church's first disability ministry Sunday, there was a, a couple that got up and spoke and talked about their experience trying to find a church in suburban Cleveland when they had two young boys with severe ADHD. And one of the comments that the mom made that stuck with me you know, now for 25 years is that people in the church think they can tell when a disability ends and bad parenting begins. And so that there, we, we treat mental health disabilities very differently in the church than we treat other disabilities. And so one of the things that we're trying to do, or my particular role within key ministry, because we do help churches serve folks with all types of disabilities or families with kids with all types of disabilities. But my piece specifically has been to help churches develop, you know, effective inclusion strategies for families that are impacted by mental illness. That is so amazing, Stephen. I am personally grateful for the work that you do. My personal story comes from my, my own son, who was seven years old when he was psychiatrically hospitalized for the first time in the 90s, late 90s. And as a mom, I had six children and then later had four additional foster boys. So I had raised kids. I wasn't new to parenting. And yet, you know, when I went to the doctor, it was all about my parenting right? and my skills or lack thereof as to why my son's behaviors were what they were. And just a few years after his first hospitalization for what his psychiatrist 
said at the time was, when he gets older, we'll look back and say, yep, he had a bipolar disorder as a child at onset, because in the, in the 90s, they weren't diagnosing children with bipolar disorder. And just a few years after that, he was also diagnosed as what they called mentally retarded back in the day, uh, now developmentally disabled. So as he got older, he also added another challenge, which was substance abuse, right? As a, as a teenager and young adult. So I called it the trifecta. My son had mental illness and developmental disabilities and had substance abuse kind of on top of it. And so personally, when my son was psychiatrically hospitalized for the first time, and fortunately I had grown up in the church. I would, my dad was a pastor and my kids all attended church and my church was very supportive. But when my son went to the hospital for the first time and I was broken and I went to my church and I said, what do I do? And they said, I don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know how to help. And that really changed my trajectory in this journey because I needed to know that other people like me, broken mothers and fathers who showed up at church and didn't know how to help their child would have some direction from their local church. And it took, so my son was psychiatrically hospitalized the first time at seven. It wasn't until he was 16 when I first heard NAMI. And I'm like, why did it take so long for somebody to tell me that there is help, that there are people who know some of this information? And so as I went through my career and went back to school, my personal goal became to make sure that churches knew how to direct people. Like if nothing else, if you don't know as a church how to help, how to serve parents, then at least point them in the direction of people who do. And so it has become a challenge to me to engage churches in the mental health conversation. And so I wonder in your experience, what have been the biggest challenges in engaging churches in that mental health conversation or even considering outreach ministry? Sounds like your, your own experience opened the doors for a lot of churches to come to you, but I'm kind of on the other side of that, going to churches saying, hey, have you thought about this? And they're like, mm, not so sure I want to you know, engage in that. So what have been your experiences? I think that our biggest challenge has been getting in front of senior pastors and lead pastors and executive pastors and the, the leaders in churches who make the decisions about what they prioritize and, you know, getting in front of them to one, make them aware of the scope to which this is a problem. And one of the things I've been, you know, struck by, particularly at a time when, you know, church attendance has been decreasing significantly, especially in the aftermath of COVID, and there's been lots and lots of talk about the epidemic of mental illness going through our culture, you know, here in America, and I think, you know, Western culture in general, that the difficulty that we have kind of like breaking into, you know, sort of, you know, the boys club or, you know, the, you know, the circle of folks who end up like speaking at one another's conferences. I mean, I think that if we can get sort of, if we can get one, the data out in front of them that shows the extent to which this is a major problem for the church, 
when it comes to when it comes to outreach, when it comes to inclusion, and the fact that there are actually now ministry models and strategies that one can employ, and that there are folks who are doing this successfully out there, because again, this is not meant to be as critical as it sounds. But as a as a child psychiatrist in the 20 plus years I've been involved with ministry, I've observed there's not a lot of original thought in the church. People mm-hmm. tend to, to heavily rely upon like copying things that certain identified thought leaders or ministry leaders, or again, like the guys who get to talk at all the cool conferences, you know, copying things that quote unquote successful pastors, meaning guys who have like very large churches have found to be helpful. And so when when we think about, like, for example, our ministry's plan, like going forward for the next three years, one of our priorities is figuring out ways of, and it, and it doesn't have to be us. It could be anybody, you know, like-minded with the same passions and the same concerns. But but how do we start developing the influence and, and infiltrating the places where the folks who are the decision makers and the the key leaders in the church who need to greenlight these kinds of mental health ministry efforts to get in front of them to begin to build relationships with them and to be able to cast influence i think that that's been the biggest challenge what progress have you seen in your years with key ministry and working with other disability inclusion ministries well one of the things that i really value and appreciate about the broader disability ministry movement is that that I think that we've done a remarkable job of coming together, supporting one one another's organizations, and and being extremely collaborative in terms of how we approach this issue. One of the things that was an eye-opener for me in the earlier days of our ministry was that there's way too much competition in church world. And that that oftentimes if folks feel like they have like a certain ministry niche and 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 new organizations are coming in or new people are speaking into it, folks can feel pretty threatened. <laughs> in fact, that's a, it's an interesting backstory to how our the Disability in the Church conference came about in that this is like this is like 12 years ago. And, and, and one of the things that's unique about our ministry organization is that we've always tried to do almost all of the stuff that we do for churches free of charge, which I think ruffled some feathers in a certain crowd. And, and at the time, one of the folks who was on our staff was scheduled to be a highlight, you know, to highlight keynote speaker at a major children's ministry conference. And we found out or discovered that they had taken her off the program without bothering to tell her because the wrong feathers got ruffled by some stuff. And so, you know, so part of how our conference came about was that if if other folks were going to, if, if we weren't going to be able to get through those doors, we're going to go ahead and create something ourselves. And so that the first we called it Inclusion Fusion Live. The first time we did this in 2011, the technology was a little different, but it was it was an all online, all video conference, and the servers crashed within the first 30 minutes because of the level, <laughs> which was which was quite the experience. 
But, but, but one of the things that we came to recognize is that the whole piece about ministry being sort of like being a closed club, that it just, it just totally didn't feel right relative to what, you know, scripture teaches. And so when we created our own conference, one of the things that we vowed to do is that we will always have an open application process for speakers. And, and that we're very intentional about trying to find folks who have great ideas, but don't have a platform. You know, the folks who are doing good work in the church, but working in relative obscurity, part of why, you know, part of why we do this is that we want to be able to offer people platforms and we want to be able to help folks get networked with other people who are involved in like-minded types of ministries and like-minded types of conferences and training, you know, to be able to get more resources out there and to, to give people an opportunity to become known. So that I'm particularly excited that we have approximately 30 first-time speakers at our disability and the church conference. And a lot of what we try to do over the context of the weekend is, you know, again, to make to make introductions for folks, to, to help them find opportunities where they can do ministry in a very synergistic kind of fashion. And again, like the, the neat thing about the movement, and, and, and I've described it like this way, that like we can fight over market share when everybody's saved and everybody knows Jesus. Until then, there's more than enough for all of our respective organizations to do that there's no reason for us to be like bumping heads or to view one another as a threat. I mean, I don't care who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. That's incredible. I love that that idea. And I'm so grateful for the work that, that you guys are doing. In your book, Mental Health in the Church, you identified seven barriers and seven strategies to overcome them. And that wasn't very long ago, right, that, that you published that book. But a lot has changed since the pandemic and our post-pandemic culture. Have, have you thought about how that has changed your ideas about barriers and strategies at all? Would you make any addendums to that? I will say that the book... One of my goals with this was to, to make back, you know, the advances that our, our publisher had gone ahead and offered us. And we're on the verge of doing that. And from, from what I understand, the book has done quite well and has been more successful than maybe 98% of the things that are published in terms of getting into people's hands. But, but if, if enough people buy it that they ask us to do a second edition, the one thing that I would change is that there, you know, we talked about there being seven barriers to folks being able to engage with church when their family's impacted by a mental health issue. And we talk about seven strategies specifically for churches to employ in terms of developing a plan for mental health inclusion. Strategy number eight that I would like to include that I think is critically important when it comes to these issues with mental health is is having a trusted friend to come alongside people with mental health struggles first three or five or 10 times that they're involved with like visiting a new church. So that like when you when you take a look at when you take a look at like some of the specific barriers and, and, and some of the things we talked about, we talked about stigma being the first barrier. Anxiety is a huge barrier. 
know, and probably the barrier that keeps the most folks, you know, outside of church. You take a look at a condition like social anxiety disorder, which one in 15 adults in the United States struggle with. We know from different neuroimaging studies that folks who have issues with anxiety tend to misinterpret the level of risk in newer, unfamiliar situations and overestimate the extent to which other people are judging them critically. Think about if you're a person and you're contemplating visiting a church for the first time, and if you have social anxiety, how many people do you have to interact with the first time that you try to go visit a new church? Like, especially, like, let's say you're a parent with with children, like, going to visit a church. And so, having someone to come alongside you who can maybe help sort of smooth out how many you know how many cheery happy greeters do you have to deal with getting getting in and out the door the first time or the challenge that someone perhaps like if you're inviting someone who struggles with agoraphobia where being in a confined place oftentimes triggers this overwhelming physiologic stress response. Being able to, to quietly find a couple of seats next to the exit at the end of the aisle or at the end of a pew without having to disclose that to, to an usher, to another volunteer at church can be really helpful. Having someone to come alongside you in churches where there's an expectation that you're going to be part of a small group where folks are expected to share and disclose some pretty personal stuff at times. So the, the biggest thing, or, or for example, like somebody who's dealing with sensory processing issues, to be able to recognize that in the sanctuary that there are more comfortable and less comfortable places to be because of the amplifiers and the sound and the nature of the worship music that they might be using at that particular service. So. I mean, I definitely think that 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 one of the neat things about mental health ministry is that this is something that it doesn't have to be a staff-led thing, that this is a ministry that the people of the church own. And given the statistics that we're looking at, where you know 25% of adults and 20% of kids qualify for at least one DSM-5 mental health condition. Everybody has been placed in, in a social network or in a, in a place of work, in a school, in a neighborhood, within an extended family where there are folks who are struggling with this stuff. And so, so I think that the biggest strategy or, or the one thing that I would change the most about the model is to emphasize the inclusion strategy of having trusted friends come alongside people as, as they're being introduced gradually to the church. Thursday, April 27th through Saturday, April 29, 2023, a special event takes place at your church on the fringe of Cleveland, Ohio. Tell us about that and why it is so special, not just for you, but for all who will be impacted by it. So disability in the church is that this is this is the the newest evolution of the annual disability ministry conference that our church hosts and that 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 our ministry helps to organize and host and what what i think is neat about this it isn't primarily a mental health 
conference or a mental health ministry conference, although there's lots of great mental health ministry content. Part of what we're trying to do with disability in the church is that this is, it's the largest national conference that, that helps churches with the entire scope of disability inclusion. But some of the things that folks who are interested in mental health ministry would, I think, want to attend the conference for is that we, we do several pre-conference intensives. And these are specifically designed for folks who are on staff at a church or key volunteers at a church that are deep dives into topics of significant interest. And so we offer three of these each year, and this year, two of them. One is one is a mental health ministry intensive that I'm going to be leading alongside with Catherine, Catherine Boyle, who is the Director of Mental Health Ministry for Key Ministry. And, and that's specifically for churches looking at employing a mental health or developing like a mental health inclusion strategy or building upon what mental health ministry that they're already doing. The, the second intensive that I think a lot of folks would be interested in, you know, is done by a Dr. Robert Crosby, who's a you know, psychology professor in California, his wife, Lori, that have published research and done a lot of work looking at how most to effectively to serve kids who have been exposed to trauma in the church. Mm. So that, you know, so that Dr. Crosby's talking about trauma-focused children's ministry. And when and when we think about mental health ministry, this, this touches upon so many other areas, I think, that church leaders aren't aware of. So that for churches that are involved with supporting families in adoption ministry, or churches that are involved with foster care ministry, or churches that are involved with prison ministry, Having an understanding and appreciation of the impact of trauma and how trauma then contributes to the vulnerability to a lot of the mental health issues is something that is something that's critically important. And to be honest, one of the ways that I've thought that we would end up getting and introducing mental health inclusion into the church is to piggyback upon the efforts that people are involved with with adoption ministry and foster care ministry. Because if you're encouraging families to pursue those particular areas of, of service, you need to be prepared to come alongside them to provide them and their kids with the mental health supports that they're going to need to be able to thrive and to do the things that they need to be able to do develop, developmentally and to keep those families involved with the church. So that folks who are interested in coming, you're going to, you will be exposed to more stuff about disability ministry than you ever knew existed. But, but there's, there's plenty of resources and there, there are intensives, there are breakout sessions for folks whose primary interest is in mental health. And I know that, Tony, we're honored that you are going to be doing one of our quote unquote quick takes, which are TED type talks from the main stage that go out as part of the free live stream of, of the conference that we make accessible through Facebook and YouTube for folks everywhere. And so on the April 27th specifically, our, our intensives, those are not live streamed out, but everything that goes on on our main stage all day long on April 28th and 29th is going to be available to folks through Key Ministries Facebook page and through our YouTube channel. And the Facebook page is keyministry.org, right? Well, I mean, if you go to, if you, you just enter Key Ministry when you go to Facebook and it'll take you to our page. Our okay. website is keyministry.org. 
Great. Yeah, and I am honored to to speak as well. My my own talk is going to be entitled Sufficient Grace When a Faith Leader Has a Brain Disability. And I'm going to share a little bit about how I am uniquely piqued my interest when I saw the title of this conference because I'm perhaps one of the few pastors who has a disability of a brain type being bipolar disorder being on disability and still serving the church in a mental health ministry capacity. So I appreciate you including me this year. I also want to just say a quick shout out to Lamar Hardwick, who is Dr. Lamar Hardwick, has written the book on disability in the church, and he's going through some health challenges at the, at the moment. So I love a good call to action that's practical and achievable and really gets people moving. And I've listened to lots of podcasts and I encourage people to do the same. And so as our listeners hear this podcast, what is something that they can do? Something practical and achievable to get the mental health conversation going, maybe in their faith community. What would you challenge listeners to do to engage their church community in that mental health conversation? If, if we break this down, and if we think about that in the context, for example, Folks who are listening to this who may be, again, a fellow pastor, Tony's, a member on church staff. About 10 years ago, Lifeway Research did a large study looking at mental health in the church. And when they were interviewing family members of adults with severe mental illness, the one thing that those families said that they most wanted from their churches was for their pastors to talk about it from the pulpit. So that in doing so, the families then had permission to be able to share in the context of their groups and in the context of their relationships in the church. Again, someone who's interested in being a mental health champion within their church, I would certainly encourage them to to sit down and to speak to their senior lead pastor, their executive pastor, you know, elders within the church, and to put, for example, our book, that there are lots of other great resources out there to get in front of people. Like you mentioned, you know, Matthew Stanford has published several books, and he's involved now with the Hope and Healing Institute out of Houston. One of the, one of the things that I think a church member or a lay leader can do is to bring to the attention of their leadership some of the resources that are out there and 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 point them to places where they can specifically learn more about this. I think one of the one of the other places for folks to start or maybe like let's say you're in a situation where your church recognizes the importance of this and I want to speak her with a little sensitivity because having been on elder boards at two different churches. One of the challenges in church world is that the, the churches have far more worthy ministry opportunities to pursue than they have resources to be able to complete. And so it doesn't mean that if folks don't necessarily prioritize this type of ministry, that they're evil or demon-possessed or grossly violating like the teaching of scripture. One of the things that that you might consider doing is that that there are two very well-established and broadly accepted and broadly implemented Christian-based, biblically-based mental health support models. 
And so that, for example, Fresh Hope is an organization we work with a lot out of Nebraska, led by Pastor Brad Hafes, who was a pastor of the largest Missouri Synod Lutheran church in the country when he got hospitalized for an episode of bipolar disorder and lost his job. And so that they have grace groups that are up and running, I believe, hundreds of churches, 20 different countries. That's something that, for example, if you're listening to this and you're a psychologist or a counselor in your own practice, or you're a mental health advocate out in the community, that they will train you how to go ahead and start a grace group. Mental Health Grace Alliance, which was the organization out of Texas that that Matthew Stanford helped co-found it, also has excellent small group models. I mean, that there's some differences between the two and that the the grace groups are time limited. Yeah, the grace groups are time limited. The fresh hope groups are more open-ended in nature and 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 tend to be more ongoing. There are differences in terms of how they incorporate families. But but I think that a great place for churches to start that maybe aren't prepared to tackle a comprehensive mental health inclusion strategy to offer one of these groups and see who starts to come. And then the third thing that I think that any of us can do is that we know of people in our lives who are impacted by mental illness who aren't able to be part of the church. And I think one of the most important studies that has come out in the last 10 years related to disability ministry or mental health ministry was uh, a study was published by Andrew Whitehead, who I think is in Indiana now, he used to be at Clemson University, he's a sociologist. And they looked at three waves or over a quarter million interviews with families from the National Children's Health Survey, which is you know, a study that the government does every two to three years. And this is a study from which we get these statistics about one in 36 kids, for example, having autism. Well, one of the questions that they ask as part of that study is, and, and, and they're looking specifically at understanding sort of the prevalence and scope of disability in the childhood population in the United States. One of the questions that they ask parents in these very detailed inter- interviews is, has your family attended a church or place of worship at any time in the last year? And so it's no big surprise that families who have a kid with autism, that reduces the likelihood of them setting foot in a church by 84%. Wow. But it's 73% if you have a child with depression. It's 55% if you have a child with a disruptive behavior disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder. It's 45% if you have a child with an anxiety disorder. It's approximately 20% if you have a child with ADD or ADHD. You know, so if you start looking at ADHD, anxiety disorders, depression, that's close to 20% of the kids in our country right now. And those kids have siblings and there are family members who don't struggle with those issues, but are nevertheless unable to be part of the church because of the struggles of the family member who's impacted. We don't have the same quality of data yet in adults, but there was a study out of Baylor, and it's about 10 years old now, that showed that people who self-identified as having traits associated with anxiety or depression on any given Sunday were 50 to 60% less likely to be in a church and attending a weekend worship service. And that, that, that having anxiety and depression significantly impacts the frequency with which people pray, read the Bible and engage in other types of spiritual disciplines. And so part of what I talk about is if we're looking at disability and disability inclusion, the largest underserved population in North America for the church 
I believe if you look at this data, our families impacted by mental illness. And, and, and you don't have to be like sending people on mission trips to third world countries to reach them. I mean, like these folks are like literally like in the neighborhood surrounding your church in the shadow of your steeples. And these are folks, you know, that they, they need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They need to have the support of a loving church family. They need to have a place where they can exercise their gifts and talents that God gave them to be able to serve other people. I mean, the mission field is out there. We know that there are things that work in terms of reaching folks. So that if I'm approaching a pastor, I'm approaching a church leader, knowing the concerns that a lot of guys have nowadays about the, the church isn't as full as it was five years ago, or especially 10, 15, 20 years ago. One of the places to find the people and people who very much need what the church has to offer are the, the families in your community who are impacted, who aren't able to be a part of church because of the, the various impacts and attributes associated with common mental illnesses. Steve, I want to thank you very much for being with us. And I found it, I, I don't know about you, Leona, but I found it very insightful and inventive and most of all, inclusive. How about you, Leona? Absolutely. So excited for the work that you continue to do and for your upcoming conference. Well, thank you so much. So again, like one of the things that we're happy to do for any of your listeners who come across this is that, again, we offer free training consultation support to churches around the country that are looking to welcome folks, families of kids with disabilities. Catherine Boyle in particular mental health ministry director, happy to make herself available to come alongside your church if you're interested in starting a mental health ministry or growing or expanding the ministry that your church all already offers. You can find you can find Catherine, you can find all kinds of free resources at www.keyministry.org. And so we very much hope that your listeners will take advantage of that and use the resources and the connections that are out there to help grow the kingdom. And I would encourage all of you to be in prayer for Dr. Steve and also all of the staff at Key Ministry as we carry out Disability in the Church. That's April 27 and 28, 29 as well. The preliminary is not live stream, but April 28 and 29 is org. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks so much, Tony and Leona. Appreciate you helping to get the word out. <laughs>